A car is never just a car. Kelly Blue Book knows it's so much more than that. It's your commuting chariot, your road trip refuge, your I just need a reason to get out of the house. Your car is there for everything. And for everything car, there's Kelly Blue Book. Need a new set of wheels? Price it on Kelly Blue Book. Problem under the hood? Fix it with Kelly Blue Book. Can another car do the job better? Trade it or sell it on Kelly Blue Book. We're here mile after mile, moment after moment. Price it, fix it, trade it, sell it. KBB.com. Visit KellyBlueBook.com to get the journey started. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome John, John, Tommy, and Dan from Pod Save America. Guys, hey Los Angeles. Hello. Hello. All right. I love you too. I knew that was. That felt like a plant. (laughs) Um, Guys, so we have a great show. Uh, Mayor of Los Angeles, Eric Garcetti, is here. Um, Okay, so big week, awful week, crazy week. Let's get into it. Uh, no, it's actually pretty good. Information's coming out. We like that. Um, Jim Comey has receipts. Um, <laughs> which is great. Uh, yeah. So we were, we were talking about how to start tonight, and we were going to start with Comey and talk about the meeting and the memos and all that. And then we realized that the day before the Comey story, there was another story about the president casually divulging classified information... <laughs> To a foreign adversary just during a chat in the Oval Office. Um, so I think we should probably start there. Standard. Um, was that, I, I'm getting confused, was that one where he was joking, where he taped it, where it didn't happen, yeah. where it's not a big deal, or where it's a liberal conspiracy theory? Yeah, first. All of the above, I think. Yeah. yeah. It, at first, it didn't happen. It was fake news. It was disloyal leaking. Haha, just kidding. And he did it on purpose the whole time. Right. That was with a... <laughs> It's like, you guys relax. Um, so, Tommy, you handled classified information uh, when you worked at the National Security Council. Um, what happened here, and, and how bad How bad was it? So, I think the first thing to know is that a, a lot of the intel we get is not necessarily collected by the CIA or the NSA or the, the U.S. It's collected by partners, like the U.K., the Mossad and Israel, other liaison services. They do a lot of work. We share intelligence, and we do it under sort of unwritten rules that... If we give you the intelligence, you can't divulge it to others without permission. So according to news reports, uh, the Israelis gave us information about a plot to take down airliners by putting bombs in laptops. Uh, And they got it from a source, we assume a human source, that they have inside ISIS that is our best source about external plots on ISIS, period. Trump decided to brag about how great his intel is, even though it's not his intelligence service. It's just something someone fucking told him, like everything else in the world. And he told... Uh, Lavrov, Sergei Lavrov, and Kislyak, the ambassador to Russia, all uh, about it. Does Kislyak have a dual role? Yeah, he is, he, he is thought to be a spy as well. Uh, <laughs> Invite and, a spy into the Oval, you share some secrets. And so then they go report it back to like a thousand Russian goons who can reverse engineer what they learned and could blow the source. So Trump's own staff was so worried about the fact that he divulges information that they called the NSA and the CIA to warn them. So we could have gotten the most important source on ISIS plotting killed. Kind of a bad thing. But the bigger problem is, like, the President of the United States has such poor judgment that he would brag about this stuff in a meeting 
with an adversary, which should make you worry about basically any conversation he has with anyone. Because I can't imagine anyone worse to just, you know, spout off about intelligence to than the Russian ambassador. So here's my question. Like, the Russians, we all now know, interfered in our election. They launched a cyber attack against the United States. Why did they get a meeting with Donald Trump in the Oval Office in the first place? I think that question answers itself. <laughs> it <has> a... <laughs> well, no, do you, does, everyone, does anyone know the answer? Putin asked Trump for the favor. Well, it's a favor in return. <laughs> Putin was like, they're coming. Putin's like, they're coming to Washington. Yeah, he's in town. They're meeting with Tillerson, the Secretary of State. Would you also mind meeting with them in the Oval? And he said, sure. I just. <laughs> this is the second biggest story this week. It's dry. It could be like the third or fourth by now. It's it's barely at the top of the websites. <laughs> it's fallen down. <laughs> The info, and, and first, so the explanations. First, they said, um, uh, no, the story's not true, right? Completely false. Washington Post story's not true, which is weird because the Washington Post and the New York Times purposely decided to withhold information that, because it was so sensitive. So they didn't want to publish it in the paper. Right. So the news media basically had more, they were more careful than Trump was. Yes. They, they treated code word level intelligence, which is so secret that it's above top secret. It's literally compartments. You're read into these various code word with special action, whatever channels of information that are held with tight little circles. And the, the Washington Post was more, uh, treated it with more respect than the president of the United States. So, I mean, so it's obviously, it, it is, we should say it's, it's legal Right, what the president did, because the president can always declassify yeah. information. He can correct? declassify whatever he wants, whenever he wants. He usually goes through a process where the intelligence community reviews all the information, figures out what sources and methods could be jeopardized, what the various equities are, and then you, then you proceed or you don't proceed. We've done it a number of times. Um, it just shows incredibly poor judgment on the, on the part of the president. Yeah, and well, one thing that was interesting is there, obviously the Trump White House uh, leaks constantly, leaks to the Russians about the Russians, leaks about leaks. There's also a story about how the White House meeting where they were all yelling at each other about this was audible to reporters, <laughs> which was them not protecting information about not protecting information about not protecting information. Until your head explodes. Until your head explodes. Uh, but... Uh, one of the stories said that, that people on the inside were saying that they weren't actually allowed to tell the truth about what happened, which is Trump really couldn't leak anything that sensitive and couldn't do it on purpose because he reads too quickly and he's not smart or, or sort of with it enough to keep up with the information. But they, they use that as an excuse, like, uh, give him a break. He's not, he's not smart enough to know. Yeah. He's just a dotty old racist in decline. <laughs> so that's not good. Second so biggest story of the week. <laughs> Related to that, did you read the story that said the NSC... National Security Council, who would like Trump to read their briefings, have now started inserting his name into more paragraphs because yeah. he only reads the parts about him. Yes. <laughs> First it was like more pictures, more charts, more Trump name, double space, 48 <laughs> fonts. It, it just needs to be a glossy headshot that says, don't mention ISIS to the Russians. <laughs> Thumbs up. <laughs> With like an 89% approval rate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Keep you, up the good work, boss. <laughs> Nailing it. Sir, we have the latest Rasmian numbers here. <laughs> so as the staff is cleaning this mess up, and this is leading all the, all the uh, news reports, um, the New York Times, Michael Schmidt at the New York Times reports yesterday at like 5 o'clock that um, Jim Comey, our friend Jim Comey, 
uh, has kept memos of all of his interactions with Donald Trump. Uh, yeah. This is applause for Jim Comey at a Pot Save America show. Yeah. <laughs> and I want to be very clear about something. I was right about Jim Comey the whole goddamn time. <laughs> Love that guy. Very tall, very, very trustworthy. I challenge anyone to do a research operation on Lovett's tweets. Dig in. You will Dig find... in. You will find a consistency of a Jim Comey. <laughs> That's how consistent. The rock-solid integrity of a Jim Comey. So, let's review what happened. <laughs> okay. Sure. On February 13th, uh, Donald Trump's batshit crazy national security advisor, General Michael Flynn, um, who we now know tonight, this broke like a half hour ago, who Donald Trump knew at the time was under federal investigation. Um, and he was under federal investigation because he was paid by Turkey, he was a lobbyist for the Turkish government, and when he was national security advisor, he uh, delayed an attack on ISIS because the Turkish government wanted him to. Boo. So, um, bad. Bad. So, on February 13th, uh, Flynn resigns because there was a report that he lied to Vice President Pence about the nature of his conversations with the Russian ambassador that he did during the transition. Uh, so, Flynn's gone. The next day, Jim Comey happens to have a meeting in the Oval Office. At the end of the meeting, uh, Trump sends Jeff Sessions, the Attorney General, and, um, Pence. and Pence out of the office. So I have to talk to my friend Jim. Hey, go get a Coke. Go get too. a Coke. <laughs> and he says of Flynn, I hope you can see your way clear to letting this go, to letting Flynn go. He is a good guy. I hope you can let this go. Like he was greasing a Jersey City Councilman. <laughs> I hope we can look past these OSHA violations. Yes. <laughs> Fucking clown. He's the head of the FBI. <laughs> do we need a ramp or do you need this suitcase full of money, Jim Comey? <laughs> the best now is uh, the staff and some Republicans will say, oh, he was just joking. Because like, usually when you tell a joke, you're like, okay... I need everyone to leave the room. <laughs> I have something really funny. I would say... That I'm about to tell the FBI director. I, w I would say, in Trump's defense, it doesn't seem like Jeff Sessions or Mike Pence have very good senses of humor. So. <laughs> well, the thing that sucks is Pence, Pence and Sessions were outside the Oval Office door being like, why are they laughing? What's so funny? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like it must have been a really funny joke. <laughs> so... <laughs> This seems like uh, obstruction of justice. It seems like the president is very clearly impeding an investigation, a federal investigation. Um, like I said, we know all this because Jim Comey took careful notes about all his interactions with the president. Very smart. That guy loves a memo. That guy but, loves but, a good memo. But by the way, of course he did. And you know why we knew he would take notes? It's because Jim Comey became famous because he got in a huge fight with the Bush White House because he didn't want to renew the warrantless surveillance program under the Bush administration. He rushed to John Ashcroft's side in a hospital room and, and forced him to stop. The Bush White House denied this, and Jim Comey won the PR war because he had contemporaneous notes. This was very easy to know and predict. Jim Comey is fantastic. <laughs> Here's the thing, guys. Here's the thing about Jim Comey you have to understand. <laughs> The guy bats a fucking thousand. Uh, he is always two steps ahead. We've always loved Pro Flowers on this podcast. We have always loved Pro Flowers. <laughs> Look. What is a book? <laughs> Jim Comey, as far as I'm concerned, has made like one mistake. 
which was sending a cataclysmic letter that did change the course of history. But you put that aside. Perfect. And you know what's funny? A lifetime ago on Monday, (laughs) when we were talking about the fact that Trump was threatening uh, Jim Comey with tapes, what we were saying was, like, who, who do you think loses a tape contest? Like, Donald Trump, a, you know... A, a, Someone a, who puts the word tapes in quotation marks. A, a jabbering lunatic who can barely string his sentences together and who commits crimes all the time on purpose and by accident. <laughs> and Jim Comey, the most insufferable man in the world, uh, who sounds like the Federalist Papers. <laughs> like, who's going to lose that tape battle? So, love it. On that Monday podcast, we talked about, like, are we in impeachment territory, right? And what we were talking about then was Trump telling Lester Holt, oh, oh, no, I didn't fire him because he treated Hillary badly. I fired him because of Russia, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, he, yeah, right. so he did that. He was, of course, intimidating a witness when he threatened Jim Comey with the tapes. Um, and I was saying, like, this feels like, you know, is it obstruction of justice? Is this grounds for impeachment? And you said... Um, it's, we're not there yet. It's going to feel different when we're in impeachment territory. Does yes. it feel different now? Well, and I said that because obstruction of justice, any impeachment question, is a political question ultimately. That's why, that's why Bill Clinton gets impeached. I mean, you know, you can argue about the law, but it was a political question. Uh, and, I, and I said it would feel different, and this feels different. It really does. And you know how you know it feels different? You know it feels different because... Uh, some world historic craven cowards uh, in Congress have finally discovered uh, their, their, their job descriptions. You know, Jason Chaffetz, uh, a, Jason, Jason Chaffetz uh, discovered that he was in Congress after he decided to quit, finally demanding the memos. Paul Ryan, Paul Ryan says that it's appropriate for there to be an investigation and that we get to the bottom of this. Marco Rubio, not there yet. <laughs> Still. Not disappointing me. Marco fucking Rubio. Um, it may have happened. It may not have happened. Time will tell. It is what it is. The president's decision is the decision the president has made. Now, if excuse me, I'm going to turn into a tiny, tiny version of myself and crawl into a wall and hide. It's just reusing stuff now. My best, <laughs> my best friend is a caterpillar. I sleep in a matchbook. I am tiny. I am spiritually... Very small. We good? You Keep on, going. You on the you no. on the fence? No. Marco Rubio, the worst, the absolute worst we can do. Look. And all those Republicans who told me in my direct messages in private he sparkles. Oh, does he? In private, because on camera you can see the torture of him knowing he's exactly what we say he is. He wears it on his face. At least Paul Ryan has the decency to have dead fucking eyes. Are you pleased with yourself? Yes. (laughs) Now, we might have to have a contest here because Dan was ready to go off on Paul Ryan tonight. I've lost. And I still think Paul Ryan is a, more of a danger to the Republic. Oh, for sure, for sure, for sure, for sure. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't very comfortable with you including Paul Ryan in your list of heroic Republicans. That was a mistake. Right, for sure. So, 
let's let's talk about Paul Ryan first. Yeah. Incompetent fuckstick that he is. And <laughs> so President of the United States is reported to have badgered the FBI director into dropping an investigation into one of his associates involving Russian hacking the election. What does Paul Ryan do? Does he call for an investigation? No. No. No, he does not. But he holds a press conference. Is he going to use this press conference to in to take a stand to express his outrage and his outrage behavior? No. His press conference is for pro-growth fucking tax reform. <laughs> um, he has a couple of choice quotes that I've written down about the, uh, the incident here, the, the crime, if you will. Um, quote, it's obvious there are some people out there who want to harm the president. Uh, himself. He nobly. wants to... <laughs> also, His everybody who works Trump. with him. Everyone <laughs> around him. Um, he wants to, quote, reserve judgment, and he wants to hear from Comey why Comey didn't take action at the time when Trump told him to uh, end an investigation. I mean, it's Comey's point. fault. I'd like to know that, too. You know what? Here's one thing I know about my man, Jim Comey. He has a great answer to that question. <laughs> yeah, he does. <laughs> he does. Because Jim Comey's no dummy. <laughs> Something and the Comey thought. Something else about Paul Ryan that, that happened today. Um, so, Washington Post, Adamantis, uh, breaks a story a couple hours ago that um, back, in, back in June of 2016, um, Paul Remember Ryan... Remember that? She couldn't be beaten. <laughs> Paul Ryan and California's very own Kevin McCarthy... Um, they boo. just Yeah, boo. Um, they just came from a meeting with the Ukrainian prime minister... Um, who told them that Vladimir Putin had been financing populists all over Eastern Europe in an attempt to, you know, disrupt democracy. And Kevin McCarthy said to the assembled Republicans, there's two people I think Putin pays. Uh, Dana Rohrbacher, another California representative. Boo. Also boo. And Donald Trump. And, every, and everyone laughed because they boo. thought, what a funny joke from Kevin McCarthy. And then Kevin McCarthy said, swear to God. <laughs> And then our hero, Paul Ryan, said, no leaks. This is how we know we're a real family here. And the reason we know this is because the conversation was recorded. <laughs> and we heard it all today. How fucking lucky is Kevin McCarthy that the one time in his less than illustrious career that he was right, it's on tape. <laughs> <laughs> so that's Paul Ryan. So here's the, here's the good news from the Republicans that, as you said, love it, figured out their job description finally. Um, we now... Paul, uh, Jim Comey has been invited to testify publicly before the Senate Intel Committee. So Richard Burr, the Republican on that committee, said yes. Uh, the Judiciary Committee, the Republicans yep. on the Judiciary Committee, Grassley, Lindsey Graham, have subpoenaed or asked for the uh, Comey memos from the FBI. They've asked for the tapes from the White House. <laughs> and, um, so all, and so all the memos are going to come out and we're going to hear from... Comey himself. And we do have some Republicans. Um, Mother Jones reported that Justin Amash, uh, Republican from Michigan, was the first Republican congressman to say that Trump's actions could be ground for impeachment. And then Republican Congressman Carlos Curbelo's office called Mother Jones to ask for a correction and say, no, 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 our congressman was the first one to call for impeachment. <laughs> so that's, that's pretty good. That feels good. That's pretty good. But a lot of them are still cowards. And then, so that was the good, the bad, and the ugly was how the right-wing media was handling this. So, Tommy, you watched Fox News for an hour last night. <laughs> Tell us what you learned. He quit, <laughs> and now he works for them. <laughs> Propaganda works. It's now called The Six. <laughs> <laughs> 
So this is a, I recommend everyone do this because it was instructive. Nope. I know we're all joking about wearing bubbles, but like, it, it, you know, it, it's, it's garbage TV, so it's not really fun to watch. And it's like, Get drunk, watch Fox News. Yeah, have a, have a beer, watch Fox News. So like Hannity is nuts, right? And, and he's, he's putting up these graphics about the propaganda media, and which is himself, and you expect him to, to do the things he does, but then he weaves this whole conspiracy theory about like, an innocent kid that was killed in Washington, and he's connecting him to WikiLeaks, just like the most crass, disgusting shit you've ever seen in your life. But it's not just the Hannity's of the world that are defending Trump. You turn on this garbage show called The Five. One person on the panel is literally auditioning for the job of press secretary and confirmed it on the record to the Mercury News. Feels like a conflict of interest to me, but what do I know? The rest of them, though, are even worse to the point where someone turned to Jesse Waters, who's like the JV stupider Bill O'Reilly, and said, boy, you're really on message tonight. And he said, well, someone's got to be. This is how they approach their jobs. It's not news. It is full-throated Donald Trump defense and the, the Comey issues. All the things we're talking about tonight were, were barely mentioned. Yeah. No, and look, I think in a couple of weeks from now, we're going to hear like we're gonna hear polls and people are going to say, we're going to be like, why is Trump's base still with him? And it's like, well, when these people watch, if you watch Fox, if you get your news from Breitbart, if you get your news from Infowars, if you're listening to Hannity on the radio or Rush on the radio, like... It, it is as if none of this ever happened this week. Yeah, you know, Jeremy Peters at the New York Times, who's somebody I've disagreed with on Twitter on several occasions, uh, he covers, but that's true of everyone, uh, what are you, great use of time, uh, but uh, he's somebody who has, who's like really paying attention to what the conservative media is, is doing, and he made a really good point about this, which is there's stuff that just doesn't exist to them, that, that on Fox News, the changing explanations... Uh, for uh, uh, whether it was uh, the tapes or the conversation with Jim Comey, the kind of evolving explanations that come over the course of a day, they just don't exist. That timeline of change, it, there's no discussion of it. It's, it's like it never happened. And these are the people who spent two years freaking out about the intel assessment on Benghazi changing over time. And Donald Trump went from saying it was X to, oh, just kidding, it was Y. And they don't give a shit. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we were talking about this backstage, too, that... that, that it's sort of become a cliche, like, oh, it's sort of a waste of time to say, imagine if Hillary did it. And that's true. It does, it does feel kind of like, oh, well, you know, yeah, imagine if Hillary did it. But it's only because our expectations are so fucking low. Like, that, that the hypocrisy that these people have demonstrated is so expected and so routine that they're so beyond any kind of moral principle that even pointing out that on the opposite foot they'd be saying the opposite thing is now considered sort of trite. Yeah. No Not answer good. there. Not good. <laughs> Nothing to do with so it. So that's a bummer. <laughs> a so bummer. we haven't talked about the reaction from the White House and Donald Trump himself. Um, he has not tweeted still, unless he has while we've been doing this, but no tweets for like 48 hours. Um, he did give a, uh, a commencement to uh, the Coast Guard graduates yeah. today. Yeah. <laughs> in which he said um, to a bunch of young men and women who chose to serve their country and risk their lives, quote, no politician in history has been treated worse or more unfairly than me. So one thing that was really interesting about that Sad. is actually Nelson Mandela, uh, a, <laughs> as a ghost, did appear and punch him in the face. <laughs> and, then, and then he went back and he went, he went back to heaven. Back to heaven, yeah. Back to heaven. So that's been Trump's only comment. And then now the White House is releasing statements and no one in the White House is putting their name on the statements. And so even, like, just basic... Can, can you imagine that, Dan? Like, we're trying to shoot down a bad story. We're sitting in, like, lower press, 
figure out what to do. And it's like <laughs> now a statement from you the sign Roosevelt it. No, no, room. You sign it. Gibbs, you got this one. No, Dan, you you got this one. We're gonna do this in an omniscient voice. Yeah, just putting background quotes <laughs> denying that we gave classified information to the Russians. Well, I mean, it's the first smart thing they've done. Yeah, that's like true. they've they have. They, I guess they went around like, who still has credibility? Oh, no one. Yeah. <laughs> the house does. The building could issue a statement, perhaps. <laughs> South Lawn. Yeah. Now for a statement from the diplomatic room. <laughs> the best was one of the um, one of the Trump staffers went on background, as they often do, uh, to the Daily Beast and said, "I feel like running down the hallway with a fire extinguisher." <laughs> and then another one said, "I don't see how Trump isn't completely fucked." So I think they're doing great. Yeah. It's a good time to work Honest. in the White House right now. Why don't they quit? This is a good question. Because some, some of them believe, some of them believe that they are helping worse things, they're helping to stop worse things from happening. So I think there's two, there's two kinds of people right now that are there, right? There are the pathetic, yeah, moral yeah. idiots, right, right. Conway, gaf- blah, blah, blah. buffoons, Spicer. People, Spicer. That have so, you know, people that have gone full Smeagol, right? They don't... <laughs> They're just, they're eating raw fish in the mess. They don't recognize, they don't recognize themselves in the mirror. They're speaking to themselves all the time. Like these are broken creatures. Um, So you put them aside. Um, Three left over. And then there are the kind of, the, the adults in the room. Some of them are in the cabinet. Some of them are still in the White House who genuinely believe that they that they could leave, but then somebody worse would be there in their stead. And I, I actually, I you know, I don't know what to tell those people because I understand why they're there. And I think that we probably are a little grateful that they're there because as long as things keep going the way they're going and and Trump will be undone by his own actions, don't we want the kind of smarter, serious people to protect us from inside? Is that wrong? Tell me, I'm sincerely not sure. First month of the administration, I thought the same thing. And I was like, I think it's a hard choice because there's a lot of career officials who served in the Obama administration and then now found themselves in the Trump administration, didn't want to be there. And I thought, you know what? We need people with the smarts and expertise to stop bad things from happening and maybe they can have influence. That's month one. I think at this point, if you think that what's going on in that White House is bad and dangerous to the country, the best thing you can do for the country is to quit that fucking job and tell everyone what's going on and hopefully bring an end to this. Like, I if, just don't... I think there's only... Right, you have the, to draw a line somewhere. If, it, if, it's, if what they can do is help kind of roll this snowball down the hill and start the kind of final avalanche, then I think that's right. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. I've changed my mind. Um, Straight Constant change. journey with him. So now... Dave, there, what were you going to say? I got lost in the snowball metaphor. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, like, guys we used to work with are still there, right? Like, the head of the NCTC is a holdover, National Counterterrorism Center. They, like, collate and combine to make sure all the right people... If your job is terrorism, stay. Stay. Right? (laughs) Right. If you're a real expert. But don't convince... Don't try to tell me that you're preventing worse things from happening. You're enabling a mad... Not madman. You're enabling a really bad person... To no, continue, he, the madman is okay. Yeah, a lunatic. Yeah. Um, so, Tommy, there, Trump's about to go on his first foreign trip. Great timing, leaving the country. Um, how do you think that's going to go? <laughs> you know, like you, when you see the foreign trips on TV, they look cool. It's like bilateral meetings with foreign heads of state. In practice, it is the most grueling shit you've ever done in your life. I don't know. It's pretty cool. It's fun, pretty yeah. cool. <laughs> well, like ten Europe, like ten day trip. You have two or three nights where you just literally don't go to sleep, and the stakes 
couldn't possibly be higher. And in this case, Trump's starting in Saudi Arabia. He's giving a speech on his vision for Islam, which I'm sure will be great. Written by Stephen Every- fucking Miller. Yeah. B plus Santa Monica fascist, Stephen Miller. Yeah. yeah. I thought it was C. I thought we, lo- I thought we downgraded him to C C plus. Yeah, I'm sure <laughs> the Arab world is waiting with bated breath to see what Stephen Miller thinks. Um, then he goes to Israel because there's no challenging politics there for meetings with Netanyahu and Abbas. Then he goes to Brussels for a meeting with NATO, and they're previewing that he might say, well, we might pull out of NATO because they're not paying any money. Then he goes to a G7. So he has nine days to fuck up the whole world. <laughs> and he's the most bitter. He doesn't have his little TiVo. He's not going to be able to watch Fox and Friends. I hope, like, they, I hope they didn't do? turn like, international roaming on his phone so he yes. just doesn't see anything. <laughs> do, you, into the abyss. do you think the folks at NATO were like, well, we really need the U.S. military, but... We don't have to meet with Trump for the next four years. Eh. Well, did you see that there's a story about how the NATO planners were asking all the leaders to keep their speeches to between two and four minutes. For Trump. preparing for Trump because he can't listen to anything more. It's the whole world now. This you is, know, we're ruining everything. This is a very dark time, obviously. But if you want to give yourself a little treat, remember that all these craven goons... Jerry's Bears? Who have been helping... <laughs> <laughs> and when you finish That's a freebie, your sh- Sherry. When you finish the berries, you can close your eyes and imagine that all these craven goons who have backed Trump are going to be trapped on Air Force One with him for days. And he hates them all and blames them all and is losing his shit and his administration is falling apart and there's nowhere to run. We've all been on that plane. It's one hallway... There's, gonna, there's the conference room, there's the staff area, there's the press. Nobody's yeah. going to want to go there. Steve. <laughs> because all that's coming from back there are just shouting questions about obstruction of justice. At the front of the plane is Donald fucking Trump. And then sitting there quietly will be Sean Spicer <laughs> eating the trout he found. <laughs> trying not to go in the bathroom after Steve just, Bannon. Just trying to... <laughs> Kellyanne Conway jumped from a plane today. Yeah. <laughs> Kelly, Kelly, Kelly just. <laughs> I regret nothing. <laughs> Fuck your parachute. <laughs> yeah. On that actually, note. actually, we won because Hillary. Blah, blah, blah. False. This is Pod Save America. Stick around. There's more great show coming your way. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How do you cope when there's something weighing on you or something you need to get off your chest? You know the best way to do it? Best way to cope is to talk about it, not just cram it down. Not do what generations of New Englanders have done, just stuff their feelings down, maybe cover it with a coat of booze. No, you got to talk to someone, you got to work it out, get it off your chest. And just by doing that, you will feel better. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash PSA. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash PSA. I live by routines, but I especially love my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. And my shopper knows this about me. When Sunday rolls around and I place my weekly stock-up order, Joe sends texts from the aisles. Wilted lettuce? Nah, hard pass. Deal on my favorite sparkling water? Whew, grab two. 
Fresh flowers just because? Hmm, sounds like a delightful idea. If you love routines that work for you, get shipped same day delivery. Shipped, delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com slash high. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com streaming. NetSuite.com streaming. All right, without further ado, Mayor Garcetti. How you doing, everybody? That's L.A. There you go. Uh, thanks for coming. My pleasure. Look at this audience. I know. Can't see what any of you look Molly like, Crow. but you, look, you sound amazing. So. Um, so let's start with the... News of the week. Have you been paying attention to the news this week? Yeah, yeah I just came back uh, 1.30 this morning from Washington, D.C. And Wonderful let me say, place. it's good to be back in America. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, if it turns out that the conversation between Trump and Comey, as reported by Comey in his memos, uh, if that turns out to be true... What do you think? Do you think this is grounds for impeachment? Do you think this is obstruction of justice? Where, where do we go from well, here? Well, how crazy is it that um, Trump doesn't have the tapes, but Putin is offering them up? <laughs> that this is this week where it's, a tough place it's so surreal that, you know, it's insane in the membrane. It is something that is so out there. We've gone past, you know, what we expected to see. I was there Monday, and the big news was, of course, the leak. Right. That would be like a four-month story. And already people forgotten that because of the second. We almost forgot about the leak tonight. It was, it was crazy. I mean, look, all kidding aside, I think all officials in Washington, Republican or Democratic, have a responsibility to get to the bottom of this, to actually chase the facts and find the truth. And it's absolutely crazy that, I mean, even Nixon knew not to take on the CIA and FBI at the same time, that, you know, use one against the other. But here you have somebody who has gone fundamentally against our institutions, and it's a moment when Republican members, I never thought I'd say this, but you have like Jason Chaffetz and you've got John McCain. I mean, they're like my freaking heroes this week, right? They're actually doing their job. We're going to fight on other things next week, but they're doing their job as Americans first. And um, follow the evidence. Get the truth. Whatever it leads us to, that's the most important thing. And we need to see the Comey memo, and I think we need to have him testify as soon as possible. Are you... Um, are you worried that this, this is the coverage of all this is you know it's blocking out the sun and we can't talk about anything else? Like, are you, you know, how much do you think this is hurting sort of like democratic efforts to talk about something else like a positive agenda? I'm very worried because if it was a trap, it's been perfectly laid. I mean, we spend <laughs> I tell my friends spend like ten minutes a day yelling at your TV and then get back to work because. We've got folks that are sleeping in tents a couple blocks away from here. If you believe in women's rights, and there were 750,000 of us that came out to the streets of L.A. Uh, a couple months ago. Get out there and help a woman in a tent who's a survivor of domestic violence get to the downtown women's center a few blocks away. We're spending so much time that the things that we need to be doing, 
that existed before November yeah. and maybe are even more under threat now require us to not spend our days playing defense. And I love LA because we're not just playing defense. We're standing up for our values, but we are absolutely on offense here in LA for immigrants, for women, for LGBT community, for the environment, and just for jobs and mainstream things that Democrats need to start talking about again, and we've somehow forgotten how to. So, Mr. May, one of the things we hear a lot from people is, is um, that they're trying to stay sane in the Trump era. And when you go to Washington, where you just came from, it feels like a funeral. You know, Democrats walk around with their heads hung low and they're depressed. And it's like, you, then you talk to people out in states and mayors like yourself, and you seem hopeful and you feel like, you know, you're ready to work and, and ready to do something about what's happening. What, what should we steal from you? What hope should we take from you? What are you doing every day that you think is helping improve things? while Washington is depressed. So November was depressing for all of us, but that was at the national level. And let me tell you, November, and we had election March, um, in those two elections, this city passed the two largest initiatives to combat homelessness in this country's history, passed the largest investment in transportation, infrastructure, and public transit in the nation's history times two invested in community colleges, which we're making free in Los Angeles, and to expand access to parks. That's five votes where people said, please, take my resources, and people think of California as this liberal place. You need a two-thirds vote to get a tax passed here from the people. And we did that. So I keep telling people, don't cede the power you have before you exercise it. They want us to feel powerless. They want us to be fringe. They want us to be just pissed off, pessimistic, and paralyzed. Actually get up and see what we have done. And I think it's really beautiful here in Los Angeles. And I talk to mayors all the time around the country. Pete Buttigieg, who's you know, in South Bend, uh, was here. He's a great friend. and Friend of the pod. Absolutely, friend of the pod. Was there first. Um, he was here doing Chelsea Handler. I don't know, maybe he's gone to TV now. <laughs> Just saying. Um, uh, but he, you know, he and Michael Hancock in Denver, and I think about Mitch Landrew. I mean, there's mayors... That November, $230 billion of infrastructure stuff passed on the same election night that Donald Trump was elected. So they're talking about a trillion dollars in D.C., but meanwhile, $230 billion, a quarter of that was passed in a single night by America's cities. So America's cities are not just the resistance. We embody the persistence of our ideals and the embodiment of action, which Washington seems incapable of unless it's backwards. Good answer. So we're doing okay in the cities. Uh, we have lost the Congress, the Senate, uh, the White House, most of the state legislatures, most of the governorships. I've been so busy with stuff here in L.A. I didn't even no, know. No, it's really <laughs> sad out there. You should check it out. It's so depressing. Um, it'll, it'll bring you down, but, but, but we have to see it. Uh, <laughs> so one criticism you hear of Democrats is, okay, we've got these enclaves in the cities. We're doing really well in urban places and cosmopolitan places, but we have this problem uh, outside of that, and it's, and it's a problem building a governing coalition what do you say to that? What do you see as a kind of way forward for Democrats that doesn't involve abandoning sort of the cities and, and the core constituencies that we have now, but that speaks to a broader American audience? There are so many false dichotomies out there right now, like choose between identity politics and good jobs. Um, like, you know, you're either a Clintonite or a Berniecrat. I mean, these things also come down to that we live these coastal existences that are totally disconnected from the heartland. I would offer that Los Angeles is the heartland. Well, I grew up in the San Fernando Valley. A any Valley boys and girls here? Valley? Yeah. So now I'll say the depressing thing about it. So when I was growing up, 
we had you know, a GM car plant that shut down. In this city, we've had Fortune 500 companies pack up and leave. So we know what that feels like. And there are people, by the way, in coal country named Chin and Dominguez, and we've got Smiths and Millers, you know, Indiana folks settled Pasadena. Long Beach was like a Midwest enclave. We are the face of this country. Don't, yes, it's true, we have a few movie stars that are here, and we have a few space executives, but most of us aren't. And as proud as we are of them, I think that we have to get back to saying Americans have the same concerns. There are people in L.A. swimming in debt, trying to find housing that they can afford, looking for an opportunity for a good school for their kids, who want to be able to have health care. And here in L.A., we had 1.5 million people benefit from Obamacare. 1.5 million. So it's really important for us as progressives, as Democrats, as independents, even Republican friends to say there isn't this division out there and, you know, cities are so critical. I always say the Port of L.A., for instance, 43% of the goods that come into America come through the Port of L.A. So I can go to that deeply red district in the middle of Missouri and tell them, hey, there's 9,000 jobs that come from the Port of L.A. We need to work together. We want to return some of our tax dollars to modernize that port, create jobs, but it's going to be good for you, too. And stop letting these false dichotomies divide us. Mr. Mayor, I was wondering... What, if you could tell the audience what you were doing and what cities can and should be doing to fight back against Trump's, the Trump administration's efforts to uh, target undocumented people. There's a lot of fear going out, th- out there among people. You know, what, what are you doing? What should, what should our listeners tell, ask their mayors to do? So uh, tell them to stand up. <laughs> tell them to defend their immigrants and to make the arguments about why immigrants are so critical to the safety of your city to the strength of your economy and to the fabric of your families. You know, I often frame this, I'm, I'm the grandson of a dreamer, right? My grandfather, Salvador, came here from Mexico during the revolution. Uh, he was a one-year-old baby, literally carried over the border in his mother's arms. And so when I hear the Secretary of Homeland Security saying, we want to take the kids at the border and put them into foster care so that it will disincentivize mothers who are coming from Central America, It's like, can we find our humanity first? That was my great-grandmother. She was fleeing war. She was trying to save her son's life. And so we have to tell our stories that this town is 61% either immigrant, foreign-born, or the children of foreign-born, 40% plus immigrants. It is the strength of our economy. 61% of all of our Main Street businesses are started by immigrants. And we will never have, and other mayors should never let their police department be an immigration deportation force. It never will be in L.A., It hasn't been, mostly because it's the right thing to do, but also because it's the best thing for public safety. I mean, the guy who enacted that policy in L.A. was a police chief named Daryl Gates. He was not a progressive. He was right-wing, but even he understood, if you don't have trust in your community, you can't police it. Today's uh, raids were a perfect example. There was a multi-jurisdictional raid against MS-13, something the president seems to be obsessed about. By the way, that started two and a half years ago, the planning under the Obama administration. It's with LAPD and others to get really dangerous criminals out of here. And the police chief this morning told me, we couldn't have done that if the immigrant community didn't trust us. Because the intelligence that we gathered about who the people are, who are the murderers, the rapists, the people preying on uh, our city, came from folks who were willing to talk to us. And this year we've seen a 20% decline in the Latino community in reports of sexual assaults, um, in domestic violence, and people talking to our cops. That's bad for all of us. So it is really on the cities to stand up and tell the American story that immigrants make us great. Our face in Los Angeles is the face of the world today, 
and the face of this country tomorrow, and we are not backing down one bit. So one thing we've seen is Jeff Sessions and the administration more generally try to threaten cities that take this position. Yeah, we're not, we don't like Jeff Sessions here. Jeff, uh, Jeff not Sessions. Not a fan. Uh, in fact, you know, this, is, this has been a week in which he's put forward, in, actually, incredibly important policy that's been swamped by the fact that the president is uh, a dotty old racist obstructing justice. But he may suffer from that policy. Uh, but, yeah, uh, yeah pre- President Trump faces a mandatory minimum. That'd be nice. <laughs> saying earlier that, that if, if they invoke the 25th Amendment while Donald Trump is in Saudi Arabia and he's arrested on the tarmac, that's the full banana republic, but which I want to start calling the full banana. <laughs> so just get that going. Not going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. You know the mayor's still here, Laugh right? Hi, Mr. Mayor. Time, he'll feel good about himself. Back to my question, which yeah, t- these guys interrupted me from. Uh, <laughs> sanctuary cities, uh, freedom cities, people are trying to call them. Uh, Sessions is trying to threaten cities into not doing this. Uh, what is your response to that? It's totally unconstitutional. And this is going to come back to haunt them. It wasn't even... I love it when they attack. When we won the Sanctuary Cities decision um, that came down a couple weeks ago, it wasn't that it was forum shopping. The Ninth Circuit, they started bashing the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, a, a great court out here. Um, it was actually a decision that Chief Justice Roberts gave against Obamacare. Remember when it was the attempt to mandate that Medicaid has to be a part of Obamacare, and states, for some reason, didn't want to give more health care to their people in certain areas. And uh, they said, you cannot put a fiscal gun to the head of states and localities simply because you don't like their policies. It, the Tenth Amendment, that violates it. And so they're just plain wrong. I mean, that's what makes this so laughable. We can see that these things are unconstitutional. We can see that they're illegal. Usually there's two or three strong legal arguments as to why, but they were still pursuing these. And the idea that, you know, if you look at Sanctuary Cities, the report that came out, they're safer, they have lower unemployment, and they have more economic prosperity. And you'd think we would be the people most concerned about our own public safety, but somehow people who spend no time here are going to dictate to us what makes us safer. And my worry is their policies are actually making us less safe, that what Attorney General Sessions wants to do is now instead of going after the truly dangerous criminals, he wants to take a net, which is very small, 400 ICE officers, and and throw it into this ocean of 2 million undocumented residents. And whoever he catches is a criminal, take him away. Well, while you're doing that, that net is not catching the people we actually need to. It's actually making us less safe for you not to go after that child molester or that murderer because you're going after grandma because you just found her and it was easy. And when there's 2 million people, don't we need this president and this Congress to do what Ronald Reagan did and to have a path towards citizenship, more citizens, not more criminals? That would make America great again. So um, one of the criticisms of Hillary's campaign in, in 2016 was that she didn't have a sharp enough economic message and it didn't break through enough. How do you think going forward in 2018, 2020, and beyond? What do you think the Democrats' economic message should be? And how do you get that message out in a media environment where everything revolves around Trump all the time? You know, the defining issue of our time is economic insecurity. I mean, I I love being a mayor because, you know, I don't have to learn that from somebody. I hear that in the grocery aisle. I hear that when I have my office hours, when I knock on doors. People 
are really economically insecure, this exciting future that we've embraced isn't so exciting for a lot of people because they wonder if they have a place in it. And I think Democrats have to speak to that. We have to say that we do have a plan for jobs that are middle-class jobs. I mean, in cities um, and other parts of America, it's never been more exciting to be part of the creative class. And there's all this great new technology, and you can get your food ordered with a, you know, your, your pointer and your dry cleaning picked up. And there's this huge ballooning service class that's barely hanging on. Here in Los Angeles, we've addressed that by raising the minimum wage, being the largest city in America, to raise it to $15 an hour, which is very proud that we did. But that middle class, that middle class is getting squeezed out. So I think there actually are answers to this. I alluded to it earlier, but when voters passed Measure M, this is a $120 billion infrastructure package. To do, just a picture, it's 15 new rapid transit lines that we're going to build or extend, fix the freeways, pave the local streets. We can now go to somebody who doesn't have a college degree, who used to be, you know, whose parents maybe were on the bomber line um, in South LA, and now they can actually work on the Crenshaw line. And they can have not just three or four years of a middle-class existence, but a career. And we can start with the high schools and the community colleges. And if Democrats don't speak to that economic insecurity and the great stabilizers, which to me are education, um, healthcare, and housing, we're just going to be out there. I mean, look at, look at the, the French. The Socialist Party is dead as we know it. Labor in the UK is like, okay, well, we lost. Let's get even more shrill. We need to stand up for our values, and in L.A., we are doing it as strong as anywhere in the country, but we're walking and chewing gum. We actually have a proactive agenda for jobs, for economic stability, and that's what Democrats have to come back to and think about an agenda for the American people before we get obsessed with an agenda for the Democratic Party. So I agree, with, I agree with all of that, and I think Democrats have gotten better at diagnosing a lot of these problems. Like you hear a lot of Democrats talking about how automation is coming and you're going to lose millions of jobs driving trucks, for example, until you drive those cars. But I feel like we as a party haven't made the leap to what we're going to do about it. Are, are there any practical things? I mean, maybe some of the answers aren't apparent yet, but are there any practical things you've heard that we think Democrats should incorporate as part of the solutions, part of that message? No question. I mean, first of all, it's the education pipeline. I mean, there are going to be jobs that are just going to shift I mean, whenever we have that mythical coal worker, it's always like, oh, he can't be retrained. He's right. too old. I don't believe that, first of all, because we retrain folks who are seniors, people who have been homeless for 30 years, people returning from prison, veterans. I mean, you can train people, so that's kind of BS. I'm not going to swear on this show. Um, <laughs> Missed opportunity. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Get you all sorts of headlines. Goodbye, 2020. <laughs> what, what, what was it? <laughs> that's, that's what it takes. It's, Total bullshit. Anyway. There we go. Um, well um, done. Cheap applause. You, you trapped me. You tricked Jeez. me. Um, so we have, I think, a pipeline first and foremost to get people into that. Education has gotten greedy. I mean, if you look at it, it's not just that the price of education has matched inflation. It's like the NBA. The superstar professors and the dorms have to be so amazing now, like to compete for the very best students. 
you can't go to school without swimming in debt for your entire life unless you want to sell out and make as much money as you can. I mean, it's very difficult for people to choose professions as teachers now or to go into public service or to, you know, even be a police officer. There's very few cops that live in the city of L.A. because they can't afford it, not because they don't want to. So I think the Democrats need to get to that. Second, I already mentioned, I think infrastructure projects are everything. I just came back from D.C. I'm chairing for the U.S. Conference of Mayors, our infrastructure initiative. And we need to demand that Democrats and Republicans pass that trillion dollars because that really is lifetime jobs. And then third on the automation and technology stuff, I think it's really important. The Port of L.A. is a great example. Port technology is changing, but the union that's here is actually embracing it. Instead of saying, oh, no, no, we want to move things the old-fashioned way, they're saying, okay, we know it may displace some people, but there's going to be new jobs created, and we know that keeps us humming. And the economy here, one out of 50 jobs in America comes from the Port of L.A. We need to keep that going. So I think as Democrats, we have to... I always said as mayor, you can try to fight the future. You know, when Uber and Lyft arrives in your town, oh, or Amazon, we can fight it off. Good luck. You can be passive about the future and be happy or sad about that, or you can guide it. And I think we need to guide that future to say, yes, these things are coming, but we actually will help these companies have pensions, have benefits, look at ways that the gig economy isn't just fun when you're in your 20s, but then you get sick and you're screwed. Uh, one thing we also saw in the election was uh, we, didn't, we weren't able to turn out as many young people as we wanted. Um, and I think that there's a lot of young people. There was a, you know, a story this week about avocado toast, which we're not going to get into. <laughs> but, uh, you know, speaking of college, right, you know, Democrats, we passed a way to make, to, to make student loans easier. But a lot of student loans, and all of a sudden we see a huge rise in the cost of tuition, and all of a sudden students are racked with debt. Uh, housing prices are going up, and... There's a great mortgage deduction, but young people can't afford houses and they can't afford jobs that are helping them save for houses. Uh, what do you say to young people that look at the politics of this moment and say, like, there's just nothing for me. There's no, there's no party that's saying, I have a plan for you to afford your education, get a decent job, afford the things that your parents could afford. I, I agree with them. Um, and by the way, low turnout. Did, how many people voted yesterday? But I think, you know, there is really no party that feels like it's speaking to the future. One of the frustrations I had, and, you know, I love Hillary and Dorster. I think that Bernie was amazing and still is in so many ways. But all the agendas were very either micro or backwards looking. Like, I didn't see my future and I didn't see my daughter's future in there. And, you know, mayors kind of can't afford to do that. I mean, we can. We can skate through, you know, four years and, and leave. But, you know, I'm thinking about the long, long-term things, like revitalizing Los Angeles River, like fundamentally rebuilding the worst airport and making it the best airport in America, building out public transportation. Yes. I, you, really bad idea to bring that up because I forgot about it. <laughs> and now it's the next question. <laughs> but we do, we do have to wrap our heads around that anxiety. If we don't speak to that stress that people have. And I don't mean just speak to it. Look, I think so much of our back and forth right now is talking about values and not talking about programs. Like here in LA, raise the minimum wage, unemployment down the lowest level in our history, 4.6% last month. Um, We have got 10,000 veterans jobs, 24,000 homeless people off the streets, past those largest measures that I said. We're moving towards total 100% renewable energy. Like if you don't think we can make an agenda, we, we have no commission or board in the city that is all male, and 54% of the people on them are female. Like, we have things you can do quickly. 
you have things that you can do immediately. And so don't tell me that it takes a 100-point plan. It takes action. And I think we're all caught in the game of politics instead of the world of life where we all live. And so I keep wanting to pull my national reps and say, like, get on the street, walk precincts again, talk to people, um, get out of that bubble, and you'll see Americans are willing to actually follow. They just need you to lead a little. And when you approach LAX, <laughs> you get stuck at this light. <laughs> and, if you, and that light is a long time. What are we going to do about LAX? Well, just get out and dance if that happens. That's kind of what we do now. It's the new thing. Um, no, LAX, we're bringing public transportation to for the first time since, well, ever. It's never yeah. had it. We're, we're redoing every single terminal. We're building a new one. We're going to force all the shuttle buses out. Um, so that the cars can actually get around. Um, we started paying $15 an hour there for the workers before we even passed the minimum wage in the city to make sure that people have economic justice. Uh, and then, you know, we're going to build Elon Musk's tunnels under the entire city. <laughs> and you won't really need a, a plane anymore, so it'll be fine. And the sandwiches are still going to be $15? That's not... <laughs> Oh, yeah. Nothing we can but, do about that? But the quality of the meat is so much better. <laughs> I feel like it's, you've been bested. Love it. <laughs> Cutting that. <laughs> um. <laughs> we'll play it on Thursdays. Okay. Uh, last question, then we'll let you go. Um, are we going to get the Olympics in 2024? Yes. All right. The LA, we have uh, 88% support for the Olympics. It's uh, not only going to not cost us anything. We will turn a profit like we did in 84. 1932, we are a games changer. In the Depression, nobody wanted them. We did it. We were the first Olympic village. 84, the Cold War, nobody wanted it. We had the first profitable games, and we invested that money in community sports, so two little girls in Compton learned about tennis and became the Williams sisters. Um, so, my dream... It's down to two cities. Paris, beautiful city. Would love to visit it in 2028. And Los Angeles. And... I think we're both going to win one of them, and all kidding aside, whether it's 24 or 28, my dream is to take the profits of this and to be the first city with universal access to sports. And let me tell you what I mean by that. There are families right now who have to make a decision because of their income that their kids can't play in, the, in sports leagues, or okay, they can only have one kid. It's unfortunately usually the boy, not the girl, so only 20% of the sports leagues are girls in our parks, um, though we're changing that now. Um, you can only play one sport you know, daughter, because we don't have enough money for two or three. Imagine you never had to think about that again. You had all your uniforms, coaches, league fees paid for. Instead of building an area of town up, which is usually the Olympic legacy, check out these new buildings. How about a human legacy that reduces diabetes, that reduces obesity, makes a generation of athletes, and they can compete in the Olympics. So that is uh, hopefully the, the vision. And my last note when they were here, they were just here last week. Thank you to anybody who bought a foreigner a drink last week because they might have been with the Olympic Committee. But um, <laughs> we, uh, we kind of showed them the heart of America and this city. And I said you know, to many of them privately, we need you more than ever. Yes, we can give you a great Olympics and we can connect you with Hollywood and technology and a new generation, but you don't want an America that closes off even further. And when the Olympics came here in 1984, we opened ourselves up to the world. We realized America's strong and we're connected. 
with other cultures and other communities. That's LA every single day. Let us reconnect America at this moment, whether it's doing you know, preliminary soccer matches across the border in Mexico, or whether it's making sure that the world comes here regardless of religion or background, and they come and they see what Americans really are about. Don't let that man in the White House speak for us. Let's build it right here in our house. Mr. Mayor, thank you so much. All right. We like the mayor. Great. Where, where does he go in no, the no, no, no. What do you guys think? Grid. Oh, the grid. Yeah. It's, a, it's called a bracket. It's a bracket. This is Lovett's, uh, yeah, this is Lovett's bracket. Well, right but he now, calls it a grid. Right now we have, uh, we've got the Senate. He knows about the seeds. We've got the Senate conference. We've got the governor's conference. Now we have the mayor's conference. Oh, very nice. Then there's also the Lunatic Billionaire Conference. (laughs) Mark Cuban, Zuckerberg, a couple other weirdos. (laughs) Don't go anywhere. This is Pod Save America, and there's more on the way. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Let's get you taken care of. Silence is golden, especially when it comes to brakes. That's why Napa Silent Guard are built to be one of the smoothest and most quiet brakes on the market. Made with fiber-reinforced shins that eliminate noise for the life of the pad. Rubber-coated hardware for a better fit and quality design that meets and exceeds OE performance. Silent Guard brakes deliver the stopping power drivers demand. Available now at Napa locations nationwide. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidates committee. Should we stop talking and take some questions? Let's do it. Let's do it. Um, So... Before we do the questions... Before we do the questions. Uh, listen, we've had some incidents with the Q&A. We've had some drunk people. We've had some very long and meandering, confusing questions. From the we drunk We welcome people. all comers, but the tighter the questions, the more questions. End of, end of that. We practiced that. That was necessary. Don't you be You weren't in time. San Francisco. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Who do we got? So there's been a lot of talk about Donald Trump potentially being impeached. Mm-hmm. And while that may be very invigorating for a lot of people, isn't Pence just as big of a concern because he actually understands how government works and has alliances with Paul Ryan and the actual people who run the House and the Senate? I mean, first of all, I don't know that Pence completely escapes guilt on all of this. Like, you know, I mean, he, he, he was in a lot of those meetings. Obviously, he was told to leave for the joke with Comey. <laughs> but, you know. Um, no, I mean, I think, I think Pence is, is terrifying, too. I don't think that's a reason. 
I think Pence is, you know, could be just as terrifying in terms of his policy agenda. I don't necessarily know that that's a reason to hope that Trump stays. I have a simple answer. Answer this. Pence is absolutely terrible. Give us Pence, you bastards. Uh, we can take on Pence. We can fight him. It'll be, it'll be good old-fashioned politics, and yeah. we'll do our we'll best. We'll yell about tax cuts. We'll yell about tax cuts and his crazy anti-gay agenda, and it will be terrible, and there will be losses, but at least it will not be Donald Trump, who is dangerous. We, we cannot lose sight. No. I, you can make fun of my hand gestures all you want, Tommy. And you can get the tweets about why you need to be nicer to me. Which you claim you don't want, and then there's your behavior. <laughs> but, but no, but seriously, like, we have, to, we have to mean what we said. And what we said was that Donald Trump was exceptional. Donald Trump was more dangerous. He wasn't an ordinary Republican. I, I cannot stand Mike Pence. I think Mike Pence is dangerous in a whole lot of ways. But he is, a, he is dangerous in the way the modern Republican Party has become dangerous. And we can fight him there. But we have to mean what we said, which is we have to get Trump out of there no matter what. My mom has been posting a lot of Louise Mensch uh, oh Twitter and <laughs> articles. How concerned should I be? And how can I tell her to stop posting these things? You know, I think you should be concerned. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, it's, it's hard to watch this stuff because there are these echo chambers on the left with the Louise Menches and everyone's a Russian stooge. And, and having worked in government, the one thing I can tell you about government is that most conspiracy theories fall down because of a lack of competence. There's not enough people to coordinate these things that make it really happen, right? So I sort of brush off those conspiracy theories on the left. On the right, you have the Alex Jones Infowar lunatics saying, this is a coup, we need to raise arms and prevent this from happening. I think both of those schools of thought and, and the sort of circular thinking that happens on Facebook and social media is, is really dangerous. I don't know yet how to fix it. Let's and put this in perspective. In the last seven days, Donald Trump has fired the FBI director, admitted he did it to stop an investigation of himself. It came out that he asked the FBI director to stop investigating him and then leaked classified information to a Russian spy. We do not need conspiracy theories, right? <laughs> there is, we have plenty of material to work with, people. Yeah. Look, I think, to, I think we just tell her, like, for, to, to believe reporting, right, you need to trust institutions with reporters that have multiple sources that have been trusted in the past, right? Like, you know, you can't like, oh, one of the Pod Save America's guys says there's some conspiracy here. Like, we don't, we're not part of a real news organization. <laughs> you know, like, like believe don't the Washington Post. What, what are you believe, doing? <laughs> <laughs> Love it does reporting. Believe the Washington Post, believe the New York Times, believe the Wall Street Journal, right? Like, these people have reporters who are deeply... And believe crooked media. <laughs> and then everything else John is saying is right. <laughs> Unbelievable. Well, we talk about news sources, right? You, you need but no other podcasts. You need no other podcasts, right. But I think Luis mentioned, like, yeah, she got a few... Someone was saying this about conspiracy theories. Like, if you have enough of them, you're bound to get a couple right, you know? So, like, she got a couple things right and now, you know, has a whole bunch of people following her. But I think most of them, you know, like, when she thought that, like, Black Lives Matter was actually, like, a Putin... A Putin-run operation, I was like, yeah, maybe not, not so Not accurate, this. for the record. So... Um, I want to ask you, are there any um, congressional or constitutional legal provisions for this presidency to be annulled? Because if, I mean, 
if a um, if an Olympic athlete has been found to be doping, they forfeit the gold. If a professional baseball player has found to be doping, they give up all their records. And if we have substantial information that the Russians interceded in this election, I don't understand because I'm thinking post-Trump, and I think he doesn't even deserve to be ex-president. He doesn't even deserve to be impeached. And I mean, I I, I feel like he, he just his name or his 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 photo in the White House it should all be expunged. He and, I agree. He should not be in the Hall of Presidents at Disneyland. And, and, That's bullshit. And number 45 can just be an asterisk. And we can just put, like, WTF right below it. But is there any... Is there, like, with Lawrence Tribe, what did he say about that? Because I know that there's um, this, um, a change.org about the election. But. This is sadly simple. No. Uh, but here's the good news. Uh, it's going to be... <laughs> Trump's presidency will end. And it will be good that we can say that this happened because it happened. And it's important that it happened and it's important that we learn why it happened because look, we can't annul the presidency, we can't annul what happened, we can't do the election. He won the votes. You know, we, we don't have evidence that the Russians hacked the voting machines. They hacked the election, they hacked voters. And we have to face that that happened. We were vulnerable to something, something really dangerous and we can't annul it, it happened. And uh, after that, it's going to be up to us to repair it. But we, gotta, we have to live with the consequences. America elected Donald Trump. It's, it's real. And the Republicans enabled him, and the media echo chamber uh, made it possible for him to win. And we shouldn't erase that. We should, we should learn from that. And we ran a shitty campaign. And, and then we should make sure that his portrait hangs in the worst fucking part of the Smithsonian, I think. <laughs> like by the bathroom. No wax figure. No Madame Tussauds. No, no Madame Tussauds. He's probably already there. Yeah. <laughs> guys, I got I've said this before. I don't know why you guys don't hear me. Build a media conglomerate. Then I run. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so my question is about purity politics. I campaigned and voted for Bernie in the primary as I campaigned and voted for um, Hillary in the election. And I'm starting to get into more fights with fellow liberals about what, you know, um, going after Dianne Feinstein or going after Nancy Pelosi rather than that. And if, let's, in my wildest dreams, you know, Trump is gone and we no longer have him as a main enemy, what would you guys say is the most important thing to kind of bridge this gap or bridge this kind of chasm that's happening? That's it. That's an easy I mean, question. look, <laughs> I feel like the lesson here is um, we have sort of seen what happens when we are, you know, like Donald Trump is a good lesson in what happens when we're all divided on the other side, right? I think in the next primary, people should campaign for their candidate and fight really hard for what they believe in. And if that's far left, great. If that's middle left, center left, fine. And you really, really fight for your candidate and you try to make your case. But at the end of the day, we all have to realize that politics involves the art of compromise. Politics is the art of the possible. And we have to come together because what the other side is offering is so much more dangerous, right, than the, whatever disagreements that we have on the left, right? And look, I don't think that means people should be pragma necessarily pragmatic or I think one thing that 2016 taught us is this whole argument about who's electable and who's not electable is bullshit, 
right? Like the idea of electability, which has been, you know, plaguing politics for a long time, sort of has gone out the window, right? And so I don't think we make electability arguments. I think we make arguments based on the values and the beliefs and the policies of the politicians that we believe in. But then once that primary is over, it becomes even more important to come together to win the general election. What you said. Agreed. Good question. Hi guys. Thanks for taking my question. Uh, Tommy, I think this one's for you. About a month ago, there was an article in The Atlantic by uh, Julia Ioffe uh, about how friend Rex of the Tiller- pod. Yeah, friend of the pod. Uh, about how Rex Tillerson hadn't filled out his national security staff at all. And one of the comments you made was just how dangerous that is if an actual terrorist incident is to occur either at an embassy or on U.S. soil. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about, maybe a bit more specific, about what you mean by that and, and how this kind of works when something does happen and how important it is to have people in those positions uh, that I think positions that still haven't been filled? Good question. So I remember the article. I'm not, I don't totally remember what she was saying uh, regarding how State Department staffing would manage a terrorist attack. But more broadly, I mean, the, the policy-making process and, and, like, the problem management process <clears throat> doesn't happen at the Secretary of State level. It's their deputies, their assistant secretaries who are in meetings grinding stuff out all day long. And that means, like, <clears throat> developing new approaches to things, thinking through, like, doing a full scrub of, okay, what are our options to manage North Korea? What are the things we didn't think of? What are the things the last administration tried and failed that we could restart? So that's, like, one track of policies you should be thinking about all the, t- all the time. On a whole other level, those individuals are constantly talking to foreign counterparts and pushing an agenda. So let's say we want to sanction North Korea. You're sending out the assistant secretary for you know, East Asian affairs <clears throat> to a whole bunch of countries in, in Asia or to Europe to recruit their support for work at the UN to help us ultimately get to the point where we can put those sanctions in place and put more pressure on them to stop their program. If you just don't have a staff to do any of that, that work's not happening. And <clears throat> that's a problem when there's something really bad that happens, some sort of crisis like the 35 missiles that North Korea has launched in the last three months. But it's also a problem for problems that aren't on the front page. Like there, there's up to potentially four famines happening in Africa right now. It's like Somalia, Yemen, uh, a number of places, you know, South Sudan's a mess. I mean, these are things that the United States can really affect change if we focus on them. And we have diplomats like bring to bear all their skills on the front end or as early as possible to manage these problems because so many of them are political. Like you look at Iraq, there are huge security problems. There's huge problems with ISIS. There's huge problems with sectarianism. But overarching all of that is the fact that there's a government that's just not viewed as representative by the majority of the Sunni population. You have a Kurdish population in the north that wants to break off and have their own state. And if you don't have people working with them, pressing on them, and like professionalizing these governments we're trying to work with, and, and making sure that development assistance is getting to the right places, this shit just goes, goes south real fast. Because a lot of what the NSC does, a lot of what the, the White House does, is keep problems from boiling over. And I just have no sense that there's people in place that are doing these things. I think the thing, not to hone in on your question here, Tommy, Please. that should scare the shit out of everyone, is that for 120 days now, we have careened from crisis to crisis to crisis. We have not yet had a single crisis that was not of Donald Trump's own making. Absolutely. So at some point in time, something is going to happen in the world, a natural disaster, a terrorist attack, a diplomatic crisis. 
and this collection of fucking clowns is going to be responsible for solving yeah. it. Yeah, and there's a, there's a scary, scary uh, likelihood that something bad happens, you know, another Christmas Day bomber or something we managed early on in the administration, that um, the, the political climate in the wake of some, an incident like that will be used to do some of the, the darkest stuff we've seen. So that's the kind of stuff that I think scares Julia and, and freaks us out. I hope the next question is more So cheer up. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for being here. Work in the crowd here. (laughs) Next one's for Hug your loved ones. Thanks for coming. (laughs) Hi. Hi there. Hello. First of all, thanks for everything you guys do. Uh, Makes the drive on the 405 much more endurable. (laughs) So over the last eight or so years, we have seen how the Republican Party has kind of fractured itself, even though they won the election. Um, You know, after Obama won, they appealed to the far right, the racists and the bigots, and came up with the Tea Party and all that. And we see that even though they won the election, they have such a hard time governing. Um, they are still fractured of sorts. Now, we are doing great now with the resistance, and we have this uh, great movement going on. And at one point, we are going to be back in power. The Democrats are going to be back in power. My fear is that um, as the Democratic Party fights for its soul, what we just discussed for the previous question, you know, with the progressives and the centrists, when we finally get there uh, at that point, uh, will we be ready to govern in short, my question is, can the Democratic Party find its soul by then, or will we be like the GOP with no soul? Well, so, first of all, I would say that's a fun thing to worry about, uh, whether or not we'll succeed when we're governing. Um, and I would like us to have that problem. I think if there, there's been a couple silver linings uh, of, of Trump winning. Uh, one of them is it's forces to confront the challenges we face as a, as a party. The second is how much energy and activism there is. And I think the third is... Uh, Trump being president has allowed us to reject notions about what's not possible, what policies we can't propose. You know, uh, I think that there's a lot of people on the far left that have been very critical of the Center for American Progress. They just came up with a big proposal for a pretty giant uh, uh, um, work agenda, right, which I think is, is really interesting. And I think you have people like Mayor Garcetti talking about interesting ideas. You have a kind of big and new conversation about the future of the Democratic Party, and I think that's really positive. And, you know, uh, the, the question the person asked before you about, you know, the Bernie wing versus the Hillary wing, that's, a, that, that's an important debate we're having. You know, Bernie had a coherent message that he was saying, we should use this message, we should adopt this, this is a message we can win on. And, and we went a different direction, and I think we were probably wrong about that. But I don't think the answer is every single thing that Bernie Sanders says. I think the answer is finishing that debate, finishing it through the next round of primaries, finishing it through the 2018 elections, um, making sure we're kind of together to win the House. But... I'm optimistic about the fact that Democrats, this was a rock bottom for us, and, and I think we're emerging as something stronger. Yeah. Hi. I just wanted to ask, first of all, if, in general, the um, voter suppression efforts are getting the attention that they should, because the messaging conversations are great, right? They're so important. But at the end of the day, if people can't vote, is, you know, is the messaging even worth it, right? right? So I think we need to be banging that drum every day, all the time. And um, I also just wanted to point out really quickly that um, in Orange County, we have some great indivisible groups doing amazing work. Um, we hear a lot about Rohrbacher uh, and ISA, but both um, Walters and Royce. I'm involved with Walters and... Um, Great things are going on. We're in your backyard, so you should come check out some of the events down there. Yeah. And thanks again for everything you guys do. 
I mean, I think I think the voter suppression thing is a is a huge problem. And I mean, there's that AP report uh, last week, it sort of got buried in the news, that um, like 200,000 people in Wisconsin might have been kept from voting. Right? Like Hillary lost by 22,000 votes. Um, there was some good news in that. Uh, and the Supreme Court decided not to hear the case in North Carolina, which means that that law no longer stands, which is good. But um, our friend of the pod, Jason Kander, uh, started that organization, Let America Vote, and which is great. You should check it out. And their plan is to actually get some press and get some coverage of some of these voter suppression fights that are going on in different states. Because I think, like you pointed out, one of the big problems is they happen in the courts but it doesn't sort of spill out into the public eye as much. And so we kind of have to have, you know, go there and, and have those fights in, in public and really you know, drum up some support. That is all. That's all exactly right. The other thing we have to do is there's a bunch of governor's races yes. in 2018. There's governor's races in 2017. We have to win those races, and we have to give those new Democratic governors Democratic legislatures. And if we do that, think about this. Florida is one of the states that is where we have a real shot to win. If we win that governor's race and we, win, and we take over that legislature and we put in place automatic voter registration, same-day registration, extend early vote, that, like that, that is the difference between winning and losing these battleground states. So we talk about the House, and the House is incredibly important, and, and we should go beat all those assholes in Orange County and everywhere else. And... But the, we cannot, as a party, forget the governor's races because that is critically important to what happens in the 2020 election. Yeah, I mean, the most cynical shit in politics is the voter suppression and the redistricting where they gerrymander these districts. You have states like, I think it's Ohio, Ohio, North Carolina, where they're you know, 50-50 in the presidential and then three-fourths of the representatives are Republican. And so, to Dan's point, you know, we have to win. We, getting killed in 2010 set us back for a very long time because usually we, you know, these seats lurch back and forth, but they were able to lock in these gains through redistricting. And so that's what makes these upcoming elections absolutely critical. And in 2020, like Dan said, these governor's races, um, that's also when a lot of the redistricting will happen for the next 10 years. And so it's even more important for Democrats to win governor's races in 2020, because then if you're in control of the governor's mansion, you're, you know, you're setting redistricting for the next yep. however many years. Hi. Awesome. Uh, I just wanted to get your perspective on what I think is the most re recent piece of news, which is the gift that we got, I, th I think we're perceiving it as a gift, which is our special counselor, special prosecutor. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, we forgot. We, forgot. Special 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 we spent like 10 oh minutes God. God. these taping and we fucked oh, Thank you. How did we forget this? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Is he a you know? There is so much going on. <laughs> what is wrong with us? It, what my concern is, is that... <laughs> To get impeachment done, you know, we need, like, this, you know, huge majority in the Senate, like, whatever, 66 votes. And I'm worried that this gives the Republicans kind of a separation now, that they can point at this guy. And if he doesn't really come up, first of all, time-wise, it can extend this out a lot longer. And now the Republicans have someone to say, hey, like, we don't need to impeach this guy anymore because we've got this other stuff going on. So, Yeah, I... Uh... I think that you raise a good point, which is we should also I, – I think that uh, we should not be putting all of our eggs in the impeachment basket generally. Um, this has been a very exciting week. It's very good that, that they've appointed a special prosecutor, uh, and Mueller is going to be the – he's like the right kind so of person to have So the special prosecutor is Bob Mueller. He was the former director of the FBI. 
He's like he's he's like James Comey, James Comey type sanctimony times like a hundred. Right? He, yeah. <laughs> yes, he's, yeah. the, uh, he, he's like it, the OG. James he's the Comey. perfect person you would want for this. Yeah, right. perfect person. He was such a good FBI director that Congress passed a law to let him stay an extra two years. Yeah, right. and, and the only person more pissed about Jim Comey getting fired than Jim Comey is Bob Mueller because he handed it off to him. So it's it's very good news, right? It's, that means a real uh, investigation can take place. Uh, at the Department of Justice, and, and we know that as long as he's there, it's real, and if he has to leave, that's, we're back into Nixon land. That's, that's all good news. But, you know, I said this on Monday. We have to be able to uh, be keeping our eye on the collusion, obstruction of justice, Russia investigation front, but we need to be able to win on the policy politics front too. And so, in my mind, like, we should do everything we can there. Keep the focus on that. That's great. But, like, I, I think we also need to be able to imagine winning the House as if that's not going it's, on, right? It's impeachment in, in the Russia stuff and the collusion and the special prosecutor. That's not the message that I think we want to be running on every day anyway, right? I'd rather be out there talking about the awful health care bill and their awful tax plan and, like, things that are affecting people's lives. Um, so, like... Now, the one other thing we can do is, so they have a special prosecutor. Um, I still think an independent commission is also good because an independent commission will search for the truth and special prosecutors, like, focused on crimes. And so we can get a kind of a bigger picture if we get an independent commission. But that requires a law, and so that's tough, too, you know. But I think, I think it's a good step, you know. And if we have to wait, we have to wait. There's going to be plenty of other things to talk about. Can we have some real talk? Yeah. Paul Ryan is yeah. not impeaching Donald Trump. No. That is not happening. No. So... It'd be cool if it did, and if I'm wrong here, it's a high-class problem, right. but we have to go win the House. If you, yeah. That is what we have to do. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Totally you know, agree. all this impeachment talk, I, I think about, again, 20, I, we win the House in 2018. Donald Trump is a wounded animal. We are investigating him. We have subpoena power in the House. We are grinding his agenda to, the house, to, the, to a halt. He is so unpopular. He is facing a primary challenge. Uh, that's the thing we will be able to control. What, the, what Mueller does, what Paul Ryan does, very hands. hard for us to control. We can fight and we can win the House and then we can have some power. Hey, guys. Um, hey I just want to say first thank you for waiting through all the news <laughs> to catch me up on it because it's incredible the amount of stuff you guys read. Like, I'm impressed as a former opposition researcher. I give you guys props. Thank you. <laughs> Even though we forgot the special prosecutor. <laughs> it, it's all good. Um, I have a request. Um, so it seems like this special event's going to be a regular thing for Cricket Media. Yes? Maybe? Yes? We're trying, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, with Indivisible and all the other groups that you guys are allied with, have had on the pod and whatever, could you, like, bring at least their voter registration groups in along with you guys for these kind of events. We're literally to... doing calls with them next We're week doing to that. discuss this. Yeah. That's not your that, idea. That... We're doing that. <laughs> John Lovett, I knew you'd have a smart-ass answer for me. Thank you. It's a great idea. It is a great idea. You had it concurrently. <laughs> Monster. So, I'm a former field organizer from Minnesota. Right? Right. Now I live in Los Angeles. Um, I love hating Trump. I kind of hate how much I love the political drama at this point because it's, it's distracting from like actual actionable items. What should we, especially like Angelinos who are living in the bluest of blue areas, be doing right now to affect actual change? Have you thought about moving to Wisconsin? 
I'm from Minnesota, so I would never move to, Minnesota, to Wisconsin. Fair right? enough, so like, fair no. enough. But look, we were talking about this backstage. Like, I, there are seven districts in California where Republicans are in the districts that Hillary Clinton won. So, and there's a whole bunch of other districts in California where there's Republicans where she didn't win, but they could be vulnerable too. Do you know about Devin Nunez? Devin Nunez. Nunez. There you go. (laughs) Nunez. We should, Um, everyone in this room should decide today that we're going to help take out Daryl Issa. Yes. Whatever it takes. We're coming for you, Daryl. We know you're listening. You said, Daryl Issa is such a dickhead that a reporter asked him about Trump and he flicked her off. Yeah. He was flicking off the situation. I almost thought he's like, maybe he's not running. Like, he just gave the finger to a reporter who asked you about, you know. We should take him out. Yeah. We're going to start with Daryl. But no, we we have a huge opportunity in California. Anyone who lives in California to go to one of those districts and to work really hard from now until 2018 to help take the house back. We get those seven seats. That's like a third of the seats that we need to take the house back. If this were were a video game... Uh, these are the seven mini bosses till we get to the, 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 the next mini boss, which is Kevin McCarthy, to the, to the King Koopa, who is Paul Ryan, and we get that gavel out of his fucking hand. <laughs> Anybody else playing Zelda? I got Zelda on the brain. Hey, guys. Hey there. Hello. Tommy, first thing, you've I... never been hotter than when you said, let's get rid of Terrell Isa. Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. But on to my question. I'm going to reach way, way back, like two weeks ago, when Acha Wealth Care, I'm still trying to make Thank it you. happen, Favreau. I appreciate, I am. It. I appreciate uh, it. Trump Care, Ryan Care, whatever the hell you want to call it, when that fucking terrible vote went through. And that dead-eyed fuckstick, thank you, Pfeiffer. <laughs> no, that's good. Jam that thing through. So I'm going to ask the four of you, because you were in the rooms ostensibly when all of the conversations were going on, we know that the ACA was not perfect. Mm. What did they want it to be? What should we be fighting for? As a woman who's passionate about women's health care and passionate about Planned Parenthood, what do the women I talk to every day need to be calling their representatives to say, we need to get this to happen. We need to make X, Y, and Z pass. What do we need to do? <laughs> I, mean, I, I, thought, I thought we were going to get a love it speech about Joe Lieberman. I did That's too. why I was sort That's of right. I was oh, deferring to you. We all want it. That wasn't a look of we don't know. Uh, Joe Lieberman. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what calling to yell about Joe Lieberman will do at this point, though I do do it every day. Uh, I, look, I think the truth is the most important thing we can do right now is call to try to make sure that, that the Senate doesn't pass a slightly modified version of the Republican bill. Which And, you know, there are 13 uh, guys, and they're all guys working on on this bill, and, and already, you know, we're starting to hear what's coming out of those conversations, and they already saw what happened in the House, right? They saw that cutting Medicaid is deeply unpopular. They saw that reducing the subsidies is unpopular. Um, they saw that pre-existing conditions and the, and the um, required benefits are, you know, getting rid of those is unpopular. And when you start talking about all the things that they don't want to do, you start ending up with something that looks a lot like Obamacare. So I think keeping that pressure up is the most important thing we can do now, making sure that Planned Parenthood is funded, for example, uh, making sure that they don't pay for a cut to Medicaid with a trillion-dollar tax cut. Um, I I think it's the same fight. It just moves over to the Senate. I think the the strategy in the Senate is um, to push the bill as far to the left as possible in the Senate because then that will split the Republicans in the Senate and they won't be able to pass anything. And I think the targets for that are Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, 
um, because they're actual moderates. Um, Dean Heller of Nevada and Jeff Flake because they're up in 2018 in states that could be swing states. And then some of the other Senate Republicans who have already gone on the record saying they don't want to uh, cut Medicaid as much as the House is cutting Medicaid, right? So I think that's what we do. There's some reports today that, like, Orrin Hatch said, oh, well, maybe we'll keep the mandate till 2020. Maybe we'll keep Medicaid in place until 2020 and not phase it out there. So you can see that some Republicans in the Senate are scared of this, and so they're going to try to push a bill that sunsets a lot of this stuff in 2020 and beyond, so they just don't have to fucking deal with it until the next presidential election. If that kind of bill gets passed, you're going to see... Ted, or or that's, if that's the main bill, you're going to see people like Ted Cruz and Rand Paul and Mike Lee and some of the right-wingers in the Senate say, like, no fucking way are we going to vote for that bill. And then it's just going to stall, and then that will be it. So that's the hope, right, to put pressure there. What I would say to this is Mitch McConnell cares about one thing, accumulation of power. So if he thinks that voting for this bill means he may lose the Senate or he will lose power they lose the House, they will not do it. So all of the enthusiasm that was directed at those town halls before the first wealth care vote, we need that times 10. Because this is a two-step process. Because you were right, the, the Affordable Care Act is not perfect. Thank you, Joe Lieberman. And keep your, keep your, keep your microphone down. <laughs> <laughs> you'll, you'll have your moment. FBI Director Lieberman. Oh, <laughs> Tommy, you baited him. Could we find someone? <laughs> I'm not doing it. Dan, go. <laughs> All right. Retired. Personally <laughs> stripped it out of the bill. A public option. Yes. Medicare buy-in for older people. Go on. Are you really going to go? I'm not doing it. Okay. <laughs> First step, beat wealth care. Second step, Democratic House, Democratic President, Medicare for All. That's the order. Yeah. It, I, th- I think about... Yeah. I think about this question, your question, a lot because two weeks ago was like the worst I've felt since election night, basically. And it wasn't just because, like, I'm a person whose entire career was working for Barack Obama and, and ACA is part of his legacy. It was because I was sitting on my couch by myself, watching CNN, being sad, watching that weird congressman pick his nose. And then I got a text from my stepmom, who was married to my dad. He passed away from cancer. She's had cancer twice. And she said, what am I going to do now? What are my premiums going to cost? She's like, fuck. You know, there's so much uncertainty and people don't know and they're so scared. So I think being, remembering that during the day-to-day stories of like Jim Comey and the memos and the cut and thrust of this and that, we all have to remember that healthcare, having a pre-existing condition and not knowing how you're going to pay for your coverage, like these are the things that really people care about, matter in people's lives. This is why we all got involved in politics. These are what really animate voters um, and staying focused on that stuff, even when it's more fun to rant about, release the tapes and like all the things we do on Mondays and Thursdays. <laughs> all right, guys. And that's our show for tonight. I mean, LA did a great job with the questions. Great, great job. job. With the yeah, great really question. Must have been a long line at the bar. Crush San Francisco. <laughs> San Francisco, if you came to our show, listen to this show. Take some notes. <laughs> Maybe in the future you'll hear your questions. Yeah. Those questions are why I moved to LA. <laughs> Yikes. Now you're now you're just pandering. <laughs> pandering. Just Dan kidding. still lives there. That's a lie. Back off. Thank you very much. Thank Thanks you guys. Thank you guys. Thank you guys.
The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash streaming. netsuite.com slash streaming. A car is never just a car. Kelly Blue Book knows there's so much more than that. It's your commuting chariot, your road trip refuge, your I just need a reason to get out of the house. Your car is there for everything. And for everything car, there's Kelly Blue Book. Need a new set of wheels? Price it on Kelly Blue Book. Problem under the hood? Fix it with Kelly Blue Book. Can another car do the job better? Trade it or sell it on Kelly Blue Book. We're here mile after mile, moment after moment. Price it, fix it, trade it, sell it. KBB.com. Visit kellybluebook.com to get the journey started.